that could be a valid interpretation of that except that the only people that go to him are drawn by the father it doesn't say what happens to those who aren't going to him but it can't be moot if Jesus said it which is why we have to wrestle with the doctrine of what he's trying to teach us because Jesus those were Jesus's words so I can't mute those or make them moot okay he said all that the father give me will come to me he said no one can come to the son except the father draws him so I can't moot that he said that to the Pharisees but that the, the, the implication of what he said is he said no one that's speaking of everyone can we agree that the word no one includes everyone no one can come to the son except the father draws them no one that means there's no other way right that we can get to the son except God takes the initiative that implication has other implications that are hard to wrestle with because we know that we have free will, right? Like, you could walk out of here right now whenever you choose to, right? People do freely do things all the time. What I'm saying is, it's clearly taught in Scripture that God is doing His own thing while we're doing our own thing. And one of these days, there's going to be a lot of people who thought they were freely choosing Christ. And He's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. He looked right at the Pharisees and said, you are not of my sheepfold. He was making a very specific statement, called them father of children of their father, the devil. That they weren't, he said, you don't go into heaven and you won't let anybody else in either. So he's, he's saying a lot of things in all of those statements. So we can't just put it on and that's what I keep saying when I talk about we are taking God out of the act of salvation because we are just making it this ethereal thing that anybody at any moment could just reach up there and grab for it by their own free will. And that's not what Jesus said. He said, only people that can come to me are who the Father draws to me. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. He didn't say everybody else was my sheep. He said, there was other sheep and he knew who his sheep were and his sheep heard his voice and those who didn't hear his voice weren't part of his sheepfold. That's pretty specific statements and they're hard to wrestle with because on the one hand we have the identity that free will is something. Uh, let me try to make this as clear and concise as I can so I don't mess it up. Free will is not autonomous meaning i i am not i am absolutely free that i can at any moment go this way or that way because i'm not acted upon by any outside force that's what we think of free will like we're unbiased let's put it that way like we're not biased but the reality is i am biased because i'm bound in my sin nature so my biased is to sin and my sin says I don't want God I run away from God I'm not having anything to do with God until God opens my eyes the right the, 
question is, is God able to open everybody's eyes? He doesn't, though. He's able, but is he it doesn't happen to everybody. This is obvious throughout history. He closed Pharaoh's heart. He hardened it. Said in his own words that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Judas was set aside for the work of murdering Christ and had already been chosen for that. Jacob was chosen before Esau, before they ever did anything good or bad. If everything was only solely dependent on free will, those things could not happen. What I'm saying is the Bible is teaching very clearly one thing and another thing. We have free will and God is still sovereign over all things and does whatever he wants to do when he wants to do it. And that's clear. That's hard to reconcile because we want a yes or a no, right? We want a cut and a dry. But we can't have a cut and a dry when Jesus' own words say one thing. And church people are teaching something else. You know what I mean? That doesn't discount whosoever will though. Because he said in the verse that we read today. I know I'm supposed to be preaching on Genesis. I might not even do that tonight. Okay. I'm going to go back to John where we were at today. <clears throat> Is it in John or Romans what I was thinking of? Uh, I think it's in Romans. <clears throat> yeah, probably. Jacob and Esau. Yeah, Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. How did he hate Esau before Esau was born to hate? See, these are things we don't understand because we're not omniscient, all-knowing. We don't know the heart of every man. Jesus knew the heart of every man. Jesus didn't walk around going, I wonder if he would accept me. I wonder if he would accept me. I wonder if she would accept me. Jesus didn't walk around like that. We do that because we don't know. Jesus... John says Jesus knew the heart of every man. So Jesus wouldn't have to go, I wonder if they're going to choose me. I wonder if they're going to choose me. He would know. Always. So when he says, you're not of my sheepfold, that bears in mind some foreknowledge of God, obviously. But in the grand scheme of things, God does what God wants to do, which is what he says over here in Romans 9. He says this, and I'm going to read the whole thing to you, okay? And I know that this is hard, okay? Because I wrestle with all these things too. But I can't take out Jesus' words. Can't, meet, can't take them out of Scripture and say, well, he didn't say that or he didn't mean that. Even though the context of what he was talking about was very clear. You know what I mean? Now watch this. If you start in Romans 9 at verse 20, or at verse 6, he says, <clears throat> But it is not though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not children of the flesh who are children of God. But children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is, for this is what was promised. 
about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived, uh, excuse me, children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, not because of works, but of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. And he quotes Malachi chapter 2 right there. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Do you see how Paul was dealing with the same question? He's saying, hold on. You're saying God picked some, picked Jacob before Esau. Uh, oh, that's not right. That's our first reaction because, first of all, we live in a, 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 as human beings, we think we're entitled to things, okay? And that's what Paul's dealing with very clearly here. And he asked the question rhetorically. He said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? King James says, God forbid. The ESV says, by no means, right? Now watch what his answer is for this. This is important. This isn't my words. This is Paul. He says, by no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says that Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And you say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Do you see how Paul's wrestling with this problem? Because there's two things that Paul's implicating. Okay, first, first of all, the implication is, is that who can resist God's will in a good way because they're going to get saved. And then who can resist God's will in a bad way if, if God's hardening them, then, then uh, why does God still find fault with people? Because this does not eliminate human free will because this does not eliminate human culpability for sin. That's clear. Watch what he says. But who are you, oh man, now this is Paul's answer, not mine. You heard what I just said. That was my answer. That it doesn't eliminate free will. Somehow men are still culpable for their decisions. But Paul didn't say that. Paul says this. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? He says, what will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honor and another of dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, 
who he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people. Remember, I quoted this this morning without actually reading this, right? I said, uh, it says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be, uh, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. What then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained that is a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued by the law would lead to, that led to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But if it were based on works, they would have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now this is a big, long answer that Paul gives to a very specific question about God's elected purpose. That was not my words. That's scripture. Okay. Even if I read it out, what's the King James say there on verse uh, 14 in Romans, I think right there. Let's go back. I want to read it. Well, Romans, uh, let me let me get there. I want to read just a little before that because I want to make sure we're seeing it out of the same lens here in Romans 9. <clears throat> Verse 11. For the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who called now this word election has a very specific meaning in scripture okay and it's all throughout scripture so what i'm saying is not that it disavows us from having free choice but that god is absolutely involved in saving people to the point that if he doesn't call you're not saved i don't know how that works I don't know how that works with human free will and human choice. I can't explain all that, but I can tell you what it says that Paul dealt with this same subject and he dealt with it more than once. Okay? He dealt with this same issue. Everybody, anybody would say, well, that's not fair, right? Which is what Paul was saying that they would think, right? Well, that's not fair. How could God still find fault with us? Who can resist his will, right? Those aren't questions I'm asking. That's questions Paul asked about this same subject. Okay? So if Paul finds it necessary to wrestle over this idea of God being in control of everything, even the acts of salvation, then we as a church ought to at least consider what the Bible's saying about it. But we haven't, and we haven't 
done it enough to really even answer that question. You know what I mean? Because if, if you take that Bible verse out of Romans to any evangelical church right now and have them explain it to you, their, their definition of what was being said here would not jive with what you read. I'm telling you. They wouldn't never say, well, God can do whatever he wants with his things. Did God not make all things? Right? How can I go, hey, God, don't do that with what you made? Who am I? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I understand God's will and all this. I'm not saying I understand God's thought press, process and all of it. What I'm saying is it's clearly in Scripture. It's clearly there. Paul clearly wrestled with this question with the, the group in Rome. Amen. And he's talking to them about being Gentiles and, and how God chose these people and chose that people. Uh, we, we don't think it's unfair when we read Noah and his family. And I want to make a statement that this morning I said Noah and his two sons. We all know Noah had three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth, and their three wives was saved too. Okay, so Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wife. I said two, two sons and two wives this morning. Carmen told me that when I went home. <laughs> but you know what I meant when, when we think about this it doesn't say Noah's sons found favor in God's eyes it said Noah did it said Noah was right, more righteous than anyone but God picked Noah his wife, his three sons and their three wives and he killed everybody else that's election no matter how you want to look at it God chose Israel out of all of the countries, all of the peoples, over all of the earth. God chose Israel, made his covenant with them and only them until Christ came. That's God's elective purpose working again. Does that negate people having free will, freely choosing, freely deciding? Not at all. That doesn't take away from free will. What we're saying is just like we see people having a free will, we see God working his will out in all of these things. And it's not easy to understand and it's not easy to wrap your mind around. But I know that most pastors will not even broach the subject because they're too afraid of the implications that it brings. Because Jesus' words in John 6, John 10, John 8 are very, very clear. They're not, they're not my words. I didn't even add any context to them. I just quoted them word for word. You know what I mean? We read it. That's what I was doing that day with Bryant. And Bryant was mind blown by it. But at the same time, I can't take it out of there. And that's what he finally decided that although I don't know how it works, I also don't know how I'm a uh, spirit inside of a body with a soul I don't know how that works either I don't know how to physically explain that I don't know how to give the implications of what that means to be a triune being okay because all I see in the mirror is flesh but I'm told I have a soul and I'm told I have a spirit I don't know I don't always understand how that works but I know that Paul wrestled with it right there in Romans it's 
easy to see that Paul was wrestling with it. It's not something I'm making up. It's, it's right there. You know what I mean? I don't know how to explain it any better than that right now, Mike. So, uh, the only other point that I would make on this subject, clearly, would be when we read Romans 8 and 28. He says, for we, all, for we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Notice, it's not saying everyone is called. It's not said there. It says those who are called according to his purpose. Is that implication saying everybody's going to be called and everybody's going to be saved? That's not what that implication is saying. It says, for whom, whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, with all that being said, Romans 10 and 13 still stands. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Still stands. Notice, and this is where I was going a minute ago, and I hope this explains a biblical idea of what I'm talking about, Mike. Go back to John chapter 6. This ain't what we planned on preaching, okay? I'm sorry. But I... I am the type of person that I don't want to leave anybody in confusion about what I'm talking about. I don't want them to think I'm saying one thing when I'm not. Amen? <clears throat> Jesus in John 6, uh, we started at verse 37, right? Now watch this. There's a few words that I want you to underline. He says, all that the Father will give me. So first of all, we don't know who all is. God, Jesus knows his sheep. Right? Jesus isn't walking in confusion about who his sheep are. Okay? We don't know who the sheep are. So I still have to preach to everyone because I don't know who the all are. Number one. Okay? <clears throat> all who come to me, all, all that the Father give me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the Father's will. Notice, he's saying, this explicitly is the Father's will. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. So here's my question. If everything that Jesus has been given by the Father, if all those whom Jesus has been given by the Father will never be lost, the implication is that other people are going to be in hell because they weren't given to Him. I don't know how that works with salvation or election or free will, 
But the implication of what he's saying is the only people that's coming to me are who the Father gave me, and I won't lose any of them. He said, this is the will of the Father. Not my words, his words. He says, but I should raise it up at the last day. Now, some people say that it there is referring to the church. <clears throat> no, I'm reading the King James. Verse 39. But shall raise it up. Again, no, because this morning when we read this, I, sh I told you he speaks of it like ambiguously first. Because he repeats himself in a, two verses or so, right? Yeah. Right, right. And he said, and, and he repeats himself again about this being the will of the Father. He says it again on verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son. Now I want you to underline that everyone. Here again, I don't know, you don't know, Mike doesn't know who everyone is. But Christ does. Okay? Christ does didn't say I don't know who my sheep are he said I know who my sheep are he even went as far as to tell them those Jews that he was talking about that I have sheep that are not of this fold that I'm going to bring in well, what fold was he talking about right then Israel because we know in Hebrews that we're grafted in as Gentiles to the root of Abraham right to the tree of Israel right we're a grafted in branch right but this is all on God's total view of elective purpose because God knows all things knows the heart of every man he is not in suspense about who is going to choose him and who is not we are we don't know who they are we don't know who all those people are right so to us we're in suspense so we walk around going I don't know that's why when I preach I'm not going to preach like everybody's saved. I'm going to preach like everybody's lost because I don't know the heart of any person. Amen. And all the people that get saved are only going to be saved by God, through God, and His purpose anyway. All I do is preach the message, Christ and Him crucified. But when I do this, I have to submit to the idea that Jesus is saying, Everyone which seeth the Son... And believeth on him. Now, now we can see where free will kind of comes in there, right? Watch this. Notice the, notice the process, Mike. Everyone which seeth the Son. Verse 40. And believeth in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So the process is God is calling and in that calling those who will be saved will be saved. And on our end it looks how can I say this? On our end it looks random because we don't know who they are. But God in his omniscience his all-knowingness is not surprised by who will or won't reject or not any of that stuff. He doesn't even have to ask the question. 
Which is why when people, oh, they're going to die without uh, uh, having a chance when they talk about people in other countries, right? Because here's an implication that I don't know you're ready to wrestle with yet either. What about all those people in other countries who never heard about Jesus? Who never get to hear the physical gospel and they died? What happens? Right, but this statement, Paul is talking to Romans, Christians, when he's saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That doesn't change even inside the aspect of what we're talking about. Because those people, if we're going by Romans 1, God has made himself known from the creation of the world by all the things that are made and man is without excuse. That what it says? Romans chapter 1 right. verse 16 I believe. Okay. So, so they, so they, they can look at things and that's the that's the hard implication because the idea is this. That if we truly believe the only people going to heaven are the people who actually physically say, I accept Christ, then the reality is a vast majority of Christians believe the whole rest of the world is going to hell without no chance to hear Christ. They preach one thing that it says totally 100%. You can't go to heaven without receiving Christ. There, If they're going to be consistent in their theology, they would have to say all those people went to hell. If that was the only factor, what we see is God elected purpose also at work where he can have mercy on whom he will and he can harden whoever he wills and nobody can look at God like Paul said and say why are you doing this why are you making this this way and why are you doing that because nobody can justly look at God and correct him about punishing people that deserve punishment yeah Mike is having the same brain conundrum everybody else is having right but the implication is the same as what Paul was talking about in Romans Paul was wrestling with this question, right? It's not easy to answer. It's not even easy to talk about. It's not even easy to sit here and have the conversation with because I'm sure what most of us want to do is go, okay, I don't want to listen to Kevin no more. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's not me. I'm not, I'm not sitting here proclaiming my own gospel. I'm proclaiming what the Word of God, what our New Testament is saying Jesus' own words, Paul's own words. They're not mine. They weren't even my questions, you know. But you'll say there's injustice on God's part. No, there's not. Because everything God does is what? Holy, perfect, righteous, right? 
So even if God chose to, like he did over and over in the Old Testament, do you think that is, was it the Assyrian army that the angel of the Lord came and killed 157,000 people in the middle of the night? God sent one angel and destroyed 157,000 people in one night. Did those people go to heaven? We don't know. Do I know who the elect are? Nope. Do I know who those who are going to respond are? Nope. Do I know who all who look upon Christ and believe are going to be? No, but it's obvious that in the same breath that I'm saying that, that's still true. That there is a call of God on people to be saved. It doesn't say anything about there being a rejection of those. Why? I'm going to give you my quickest answer on this. John 3, 18 and 19. Those who believe will have eternal life. Right? Let's go to that. John 3, 16, 17, 18. Watch that. I want you to notice this, okay? Because what we have the idea of is that God is actively denying people. That's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible teaches is that they're already condemned. We're already condemned. John 3, 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now this verse here can be used by a lot of church universalists to say, well, see, everybody's going to be saved. He's going to save the whole world. Well, we know that's not what that verse is saying, don't we? Because the whole world ain't going to be saved. We read the book of Revelation, right? People thrown into the lake of fire for eternity, right? So this can't possibly be the actual meaning of that verse. Right? Now watch this. Verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Now notice, the person that is not believing receives grace to be saved. Because they believe. The person that does not believe is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So in this, we still see human free will, don't we? We still see people choosing. We still see people making culpable decisions to believe in Christ or not believe in Christ. And this verse, if we want to take it just plainly like this, and not think about John 6 and John 8 and John 10, we can make it mean that it's only on free will. But when we flip over to John 6, we see the opposite side of this coin where God is at work in calling and electing and choosing and hardening and, and not hardening and, and having mercy on some and not on others. This is plainly said in God's own words. In Paul's own words. And Paul was quoting uh, Hosea, right? So we got to understand, like I told you at the beginning of this, 
it is teaching two things that are true. It's absolutely true that whosoever will, but also absolutely true that nobody's coming to Christ except God the Father draws them. And if there's not a drawing, my answer would be they stand condemned. God condemns even in your understanding of it. Even, in the, the, even if the understanding is total fr human freedom to do and say whatever, which is true. I'm not saying we don't have free will. That is clearly taught. But it's also clearly taught that God somehow in all of this is making elective decisions also. Okay? Can't deny what the scripture is saying. So in this, what I'm telling you is, Paul wrestled with that same exact question. What then? Why does God find fault? Why does God condemn if, any, if people can't resist his will? Who can resist his will? He's asking the question rhetorically, right? You're asking the same question that Paul asked rhetorically. And Paul's answer to that was, God can do whatever God wants to do. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And he will harden whom he wills. That's the exact words used in Paul's answer to that very question. No. That's what I'm telling you. I'm, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying the scripture teaches that. What I'm telling you is absolutely unequivocally that both things are taught. God is making choices and we have free will. That's undeniable by what Paul is saying. Now, with that being said, before you received Christ, what was your condition? You were lost before you received Christ. Do you understand the implications of being lost? I was dead in my trespasses and sin. You stood condemned before Christ. Before you were chosen, elected, saved, however you want to call it, you stood condemned. Period. If you would have died without Christ, what would have happened to you? Precisely. And that would have not been your choice. God would have had mercy on whom he would have had mercy. And he would have hardened who he hardened and condemned whoever he wanted. And if you had not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you would have split hell wide open. And it wasn't a part of your choice that got you to Christ. God found you and opened your eyes. That's a fact. Everybody that ever gets saved has the same story. God showed up. 
We're not talking about God picking one person and then throwing everybody else in condemnation. Outside of Christ, we stand condemned. Right? And then, just like you said, God will have mercy on who he will have mercy. And the question is very hard to answer. Even for me, even for Kyle, it's hard to answer. Because we don't know. We're not God. We don't get to make those choices. I'm not telling you who's saved and who ain't saved. I can't walk around and tell you who God will condemn and who God won't condemn. What I can tell you is, Paul wrestled with this question in Romans 9. Because he didn't know, even being a direct apostle of Lord Jesus, he didn't know. Right. Why is it? Why is it? I don't know. God had mercy on him. He had mercy. He hardened to me hard. Pardon, you know, who are we to what, say? The easy thing to do is this, okay? For This is what most of the church does, okay? And I'm gonna, we're going to close and we're going to pray here in just a second. But this is what most of the church does with this, Mike. I'll show you exactly what they do. They close it. They ignore it. They don't talk about it. When's the last time you heard a message on Romans 9? When's the last time you heard a preacher talking about Romans 9 and God having mercy on whom he will have mercy? Paul ain't talking to lost people. Paul's talking to the church in Rome. Okay? When's the last time you heard somebody preach about John 6? Where Jesus said, <clears throat> well, we talked about it this morning. John 6 where he says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And no one who comes to me will in any wise be cast out. I am going to be completely honest with you. Before I read the book of John thoroughly, the only time I heard that verse was when they quoted the last half of that verse. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. That was the only part of that verse that I knew existed before I read it myself and realized it said something else before all who come to me I will in no wise cast out it says something else it says all that the father gives me will come to me that's the whole verse all that the father gives me will come to me and he who comes to me I will in no wise cast out now here's the next question and I'm gonna close who's the he because it says all that the father will give me will come to me and he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Who's the he? I don't know. And you don't know. It's just like we don't know whosoever will. We don't know those who will and those who won't. God certainly does. And it's not, uh, it's not a mystery to him. This whole process is not a mystery to him. It's a mystery to us because, first of all, we like being in control of stuff. And we thought we like thinking, well, I made that choice. Well, you did make that choice. Right after he opened your eyes, you made a choice. <laughs> Amen? Because before, the only choice I was making was to do evil, to do bad, to live my life of sin. That was the only choice I was making at the time. Until God. But God. Amen? Now, I'm not saying this to confuse you, Mike. I was trying to help give you some 
understanding that this isn't just something that I'm making up. It's not just something that I'm uh, throwing out there as Kevin's doctrine. That's why I took you to where Paul was talking about this subject. Okay. Uh, now, Sunday night, <laughs> we're going to be talking about <laughs> the, uh, the uh, image of God in man. Day six has three things happen, okay? In Genesis chapter one, day six has three things. Number one, God creates animal life, right? Creates the cattle and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth, right? Now it says, and then it says, and God created man in his own image, his own likeness. And when we talk about the image of God in us, we're talking about the reality that we do have free moral agency. We do have the ability to choose. It's absolutely fundamentally taught in scripture. I am not denying that. I'm gonna say it over and over while we're having this conversation. I believe there is human choice. We do freely choose and freely don't choose. We do. All I'm saying is, if we're going to believe all of what Jesus said, then we have to understand that God has other things, other mechanisms at work in the miracle, the mystery, Paul said, of salvation. Because though Paul knew the scriptures and followed the law and should have known God, he did not know Christ, rejected Christ. And his own words in Galatians 1 and 16, in the fullness of time, God saw fit to reveal his son to me. It doesn't happen any other way. God always takes the initiative. If you can think of election any other way, just think of it like that to start with. Okay? That salvation only happens because God initiates it. Okay? And if, if you're still wrestling with all the rest of it, good. Because so is Kyle, and so am I, and now everybody else is too. <laughs> Amen? I'm not standing up here saying I got it all figured out. What I'm standing up here saying is I ran into the same wall you ran into three and a half years ago when I read Romans 9, really read it, and really heard somebody preach about, you know, God electing people. And, and I went to the Bible I had my King James Bible out, Mike, and my concordance. I went home and I sat down and I was going to disprove that election was even in the scripture. I was like, I bet the word election ain't even in the Bible. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. Okay? I was really wrong. Especially concerning the New Testament. Okay? Now, they didn't call it election in the Old Testament, but you can see God choosing Israel. You can see God choosing Abraham. You can see God choosing David. You can see God choosing Jacob. You can see God choosing Joseph. You can see God choosing uh, uh, Noah. You can see, I mean, God chose all throughout the Old Testament. You know what I mean? And if he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever, we got to understand that that same God who worked out his own will and chose whom he wanted and chose whom he didn't want, then is still doing that somehow in all of this that's 
fact. And I just might add to what he said. Not only did I not think it was true, but I I did not want it to be true. <laughs> I, I fought tooth and nail against it. And I was like him. I said, that word election's not even in there. And then I found it in there. I said, well, that's not what that means. You just got to read the context. And then I was reading the context and I was like, Oh. Well, there's got to be something. Well, that's. And I joined another yeah, passage. I had read that too, but I thought I just didn't understand what he was saying. Well, well and, and the, re the reality is, when I read the context, it did not help me. No, okay? It, it like, John 6, when you read John 6 in context, of the whole conversation with the Pharisees where he's telling them, you don't understand because you can't hear my voice. You don't want to hear my words. And then he's telling them, you know, I've got sheep of a different fold. And, you know, and I was like, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. This election thing is killing me. I can't, I, I can't believe this. Because what I did for years, okay, and I'm just telling you this, what I did for years with all kinds of people, was I would say, well, I don't believe that, and I'd go on. And I would never go read it in context. I just blew it off. This whole conversation I would blow off. But when I actually went and sat down and read all these things about election and the, you know, Romans 8, 29, talking about predestination and predestined and foreknew and called and, and justified, I was like, what? All of that, when you read it in context, you start going, think I might have been wrong you know what I mean and then I read Romans 9 and it really didn't help because <laughs> what I want to be true is that Kevin and I'm gonna say it the way I felt okay I held on to this autonomous free will so hard because I wanted to be in control of my choosing God I'm just telling you, I wanted to be like, I, I got saved. I chose Christ. Well, he said, remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Amen? So it's hard. It's a hard doctrine. It's hard to understand, especially when you've got to say both of them is true. I understand that. Even if we're talking about his disciples, what you got to understand is he chose those 12 and nobody else to accomplish what he wanted to do. That is still an elective choice by God, sovereignly choose. And in choosing 12, he cho chose one that had to betray him. Point blank, Judas was chosen to betray him said it. You can go in Acts and read where it says, except Judas, whom you chose. But he didn't. He chose Judas. And when you say he could have chosen anybody, that's where I would say, you're right. God can choose anybody he wants for anything he wants for whatever purpose he wants you're right and the implication of that choice is that person was going to hell 
that, that's neither here nor there. He still chose them. Okay? The point is he's making the choice, not them. Right. It would have still been him making the choice. Right, right, right. It was for the specific purpose of being the apostles. Is that what you're meaning? talking about that specific verse where he said you didn't choose me I chose you I would agree with you that in context he's talking about them being the disciples now going back to Romans 9 the context is God will harden who he wants and give mercy to who he wants and that one is a much more tougher much more tough to grapple with because we go oh no the reality is, you're right, he could have chose anybody for the disciples, but the reality is, one of the disciples he chose, he chose Judas, and Judas was chosen for destruction. Wrap your mind on that one. Because where you're talking about he only chose them for apostles, we have to understand that Judas was chosen for destruction. Had to have been. If God chose Judas to betray Christ and Christ said it will be easier for the day of judgment for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah than the man who betrays me. He knew the implication of choosing, purposefully choosing Judas. <laughs> That's a hard one. I know. I know, man. I love you. And I feel the same way. And I don't have it all figured out, which is why when I talk about it, I just say that God initiates salvation. He is the initiator of everyone who is saved. Because the rest of it is very, very difficult to grapple with. Amen? Now, I didn't want to get everybody all depressed and hurt and uh, uh, anything like that. Because the reality is, if you know Christ, then Romans... 8, 28, 29, 30, 31 ought to give you peace because he chose you, predestined you, called you. And if he called you, he's going to justify you. And if he justified you, he's going to glorify you. Amen. He's God. <laughs> that, that is a good question. Now watch this. I'm going to give you the quickest answer as I can with this. Do you love Jesus Christ in any way? Anybody outside of Christ will not love Christ at all. And you can see it in the world. Right? You can see that they reject Christ. They don't want anything to do with Christ. My Reason for bringing that up is because Paul said, let each man examine himself to see if he be in the faith. Why is he making this implication? What, what he's saying is you need, and he even uses these words, make your, or Peter uses these words, right? Make your calling and election 
sure. Peter uses those exact words to make sure your calling and election are sure. So how do I do that? Well, first of all, I'm in an attitude of prayer and repentance all the time. I'm submitting myself to Christ. We already know that the world does not submit to the things of God, nor does it understand the things of God, right? So if I'm in Christ and I'm starting to understand the things of God and following the things of God, then I must be in Christ because there's no way that a worldly person who's dead in their trespasses and sin is going to follow Christ or understand the things of God, period. It says the world does not receive them because they are enmity. They're against them. Okay? So my quickest answer is number one. If you have any love for God, the word of God, you're trying to follow God. It is not because you're some uh, uh, lost person out here feeling around for God. It's because God has opened your eyes. You have truly been received the gift of faith and you are following Christ. That has got to be the answer. That's the quickest and best way I can explain it. Because those who are not in Christ do not do those things. Okay? That's how you know. And Paul gives us warnings and Peter gives us warnings to make sure our profession is true. That our calling and our election is true. Amen? That's why he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before the hand of Almighty God. Amen? Because none of us, period, nobody deserves heaven. The question is not, why doesn't God choose those people? The, why, the question should be, why does God choose anybody? And when he does, those people need to respond, and they do respond with an attitude of graciousness, thanking God that they are saved, and they follow Christ with a love that God has given them for himself. That's undeniable. John said, those who love are born of God. Those who don't love are not born of God. Amen. So how do I know I'm not of the world and I, I love Christ? I mean, and, and I don't know how all this the, what level it takes or any of that thing, I'll say this, and I think R.C. Sproul said it best. He said, if you have just an inkling of a love for Christ, that inkling was given to you by God, and you have got to be part of the church. Those who are saved, those who are born again, the elect, whatever we want to call it. But the truth is, those people who have chosen God Follow God. Love God. Those who don't, don't do those things. Amen? John says that no man except by the Holy Spirit can say to Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, is it John or James? But you're right. He says no one can say that Christ is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Right. A lost person a having the Holy Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Okay, or there's no a saved person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Right, there's no lost person that has the Holy Spirit. So if people are making an absolute profession of faith, now we got to understand what he's saying there too. It's not just I believe without evidence, because we know that James said faith that doesn't produce change 
or doesn't isn't accompanied by works is not a safe that uh, is not a faith that saves. Amen. So Ephesians two eight and nine still saying by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Amen. First Corinthians twelve three. What's it say? There we go. Paul writing to the Corinthians. Amen. So these are tough things. So yeah, that's a great question. And I'm glad you finally got to that question. How do I know I'm part of the family of God then? We have all kinds of biblical evidence saying this is what saved people look like, right? That's why Paul wrote all his letters admonishing people to, to, to submit and yield yourself to Christ. Yield yourselves as members to righteousness, right? Know what he said? Not unto unrighteousness. Because we are saved, have a knowledge of God, we're going to follow God, and we're continually being changed by his spirit from glory to glory, right? Not by my might, not by my power, but by his spirit from glory to glory. Amen? And that's how anybody's ever saved. John 3 and 8. You're born of the spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. I know this wasn't what we expected to walk in here to tonight. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's... Well... Well, the worst part is when you're still wrestling with it and you got a microphone and you're about to teach on Genesis and then you got to try to explain it on the fly. <laughs> That's even harder. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, and praise you for your grace. Lord, I thank you that even though we are ill-equipped and so often unable to articulate what you're doing in our lives. We're so often confused by how you operate, even in Scripture, God. Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that would be open to your word, to your teaching, God. Lord Jesus, if any of us, me included, God, are walking in any kind of error, God, I submit to you, God. And I pray that everyone else would submit to you. That they would let you lead them. Let you guide them. Let your word be true. And every man be a liar. God, I pray that you would help us as we wrestle with this very difficult understanding, God, that is clearly in the word, even if we don't have the, all the answers to explain it. I pray, God, that you would help us to find those answers, that you would bring clarity and peace in our hearts, in our understandings, and help us as we submit to you, God. Lord, we know that, we know, God, that you chose us first. We know that no one comes to you, Jesus, except the Father God moves upon the heart of a dead and lifeless sinner who's lost dead in their trespasses and sin 
And we, all of us, thank you for saving us, for redeeming us, for changing us, and for making us, molding us, and shaping us into the image of your dear Son, that we might be found perfect in your sight. God, help us tonight. I pray that for me, for Mike, for, for Kyle, for Ruth and Tabby and Carmen and Becca, Lord, for all the kids who sit and listen to a bunch of old geezers talk about the Bible like this. Help us to have the courage to have these conversations and not to walk away from them with bad spirits or upset minds God but let us walk away understanding that in the end God you have final say and you will do what you want to do and I think I can speak for all of us that we submit to you God to have your way in me to do with me what you want to do Lord we thank you and praise you in Jesus name Amen <clears throat>